Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's history class. Last time we had the firing on Fort Sumter. I know you're all into dates. April 12th, 1861. Major Anderson surrendered on April the 14th. And you probably remember from the last podcast, this is when Americans could not get enough of American flags to fly from their homes and their businesses which we still do today. And as Lincoln will say in his second inaugural, and the war came. Let's play Jeopardy. I know you enjoy playing Jeopardy and probably watch it faithfully. Let's do final Jeopardy. Remember, answer as if it's a question. The first rebellion in the United States was, what was the Whiskey Rebellion? Second question, who was George Washington, the first president to put down a rebellion? And precedent is important. Lincoln knows that. Now he is faced with another rebellion. And so, what do you do? You look to see what Washington did. And Washington called out the troops to put down a rebellion, which is constitutional. And so Lincoln is going to quote virtually from Washington's call for troops. When he issued a call for 75,000 men to serve for 90 days. Now, just by saying that, there are several things I need to mention. First, who are these troops? The United States military, back in those days and before those days, was thought to be a threat to the government, and so we did not have what was called a standing army, which we would call today a regular army, until there was time of war. And between the wars, there were very few men in the military, and at this time, in 1861, there were approximately 25,000 soldiers in the entire Union Army. Now, if you're going to fix food for them, that's a whole lot of people. But when you know that in this war, there would be one army of over 100,000 men, that's not very many. Not the 100,000, the 20, 25,000 U.S. soldiers in 1861 before Lincoln called for volunteers. So what he did was, using Washington's orders, he had the governors of each of the states, based upon population, were told to furnish so many men to the federal cause. And where do these men come from? Well, going all the way back to at least Jamestown in 1607, the English were not going to send an army over to protect the colonists from, I'm sorry, Native American Indians. So you had to rely upon your own people to defend yourself, and they formed militia units. By this time, 1861, the Indian 
threat has been moved far to the west, and those towns that still had militiamen, that was mainly a social function. You would drill once a month on the weekend, have a party, have a dance, have a barbecue, have a fish. Can you not picture the fun? But what you did not do very much was train, and there were not many militiamen when you needed 75,000 men. And so they start coming. They start coming. But there are things that have to be done. Things that many people do not think of. I know that because at one time I did not think much of it. Officers are going to have to furnish and purchase their own uniforms and their own weapons. Enlisted men will have them furnished to them, but officers had to buy their own. Now, I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. There are things that I collect, I collected in the past, because there is an old saying, a fool and his money, and you can finish that. Well, I'm the fool, and what I've done over the years is collected things of history. Long, long ago, before most of you podcasters were here, I discovered swords, Civil War swords. And on the brass part of the scabbard, on some of them, were inscriptions presented to, and there was a name. I was fascinated. I purchased one. I researched it. And that started a passion that was unbelievable. I started trying to find other things about it. Books, newspapers, And what I discovered was that many of these men that were going to volunteer and be officers could not afford the weapons they were going to have to have to go to war. And so that family and friends would chip in and present various items to them. And I also found that some newspapers carried these as they do today, weddings, engagements, and I was fascinated. And that led to the first book that I did, published in 1983, Get Ready for a Romantic Title. I wanted something like Etched in Glory, but my friend and English teacher, Dr. Dennis Holt, shout out to him, He said, what is the book about? I said, Inscribed Union Swords. So he said, there's your title. It's Inscribed Union Swords. Now, I know Renee wish I had done Inscribed Confederate Swords, and I had thought about doing a few of them, but they were about 10 times more expensive than a Union Sword, and unfortunately, about 10 times more fakes. And so I decided just to do Union Swords. Now, let me tell you, podcasters, because this is my history class. I've been asked from time to time, how many books have you done? Five. What's your next one? 
there is not going to be another one? Well, why not? There are some authors that can write all the time. My son is one of them, Benjamin. But not me. I have a criteria. To begin with, if I'm going to do a book, then I want it to be a book about something no one else has ever written about. Far be it for me to do better than. Second, something I'm very interested in. Because I don't know about you, but I found writing is not easy. It's time-consuming. Third, there's enough information that you can write a book. So you put all those together, and five is the number. But I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. In writing about these swords, I learned things about the Civil War that I had never known before, and I have been into history since I was in the fourth grade, and I can remember the very first book I listened, very first book I read was a little biography on an Indian named Squanto who befriended the pilgrims. And what I found was that these men were very proud of those swords. And it wasn't just swords, there were also revolvers that were presented to them, and uniforms, and money. And so in the first book I did, Inscribe Union Swords, I'm going to say something, podcasters, right now. There are other books on swords, other books on Civil War swords, other books on Union swords of the Civil War. But what I have in mind is something that the others do not have. And I know that because I bought them and I've looked at them and I've read them. I have something called history. The very first chapter in Inscribed Union Swords was the presentation of the sword. And in that, I have some of the articles that I mentioned, the reasons for the presentation of the swords and all of that. I also have the sword in combat. And yes, Union Swords and Southern Hands. Some of the most famous Confederate generals carried the old swords from the Union days. And those are in my book also. Now, because when I start talking like this, I start going into this subject and I have to stop and get back to where I was, where I meant to be. And so... I was fascinated with those newspaper articles. Well, why stop with one? And I found that I could get some of the newspapers from the Civil War on microfilm. Not many. I looked at New Orleans Picayune. I only found one sword presentation, and that was the beautiful sword presented to P.G.T. Beauregard, the hero of Fort Sumter. What that paper tended to cover were flag presentations, which I do also enjoy reading about. I found that some of the northern papers would cover sword and revolver presentations. I found that I could get one northern newspaper on microfilm six months at a time for the entire war. 
And that was the Boston Daily Evening Transcript. How thrilled was I that the interlibrary loan lady started ordering them six months at a time. And so what I did is I started on January 1st, 1861. And every time I found a sword of revolver presentations, I copied it, went back to my office, took out a typewriter, no computers, a typewriter. I have to confess it was an electric typewriter. And I copied verbatim that article. I did that from January 1st, 1861, all the way through December 31st, 1865. And after each article, I would then turn my little swivel chair to the right, and there I had, I believe there were eight volumes. Soldiers, Sailors, and Marines in the War of the Rebellion from Massachusetts. And I would look them up. And after each article, I told a brief history of the officers mentioned in that article. Now, to give you an example, because I know you want one, in Inscribed Union Swords on page 15 is a photograph of an officer, Charles Rand, a captain. He's the one that I put on my Facebook. And I have that little article. But also, in Daily Evening Transcript, he is the second article that I found. And the reason I'm not doing the first one is simply because they presented swords and revolvers to all of the officers in two companies, and that would involve eight. But the second article was, and I'm going to read it to you. Hang on. Captain Charles E. Rand, who raised a company of 80 volunteers, was yesterday presented by an individual with a check for $100 for the purpose of purchasing a sword and revolver. The liberal donor expressed the hope that the instruments of warfare might be well used in the cause to which he and his companions were about to give their service. And then, Captain Charles E. Rand was commissioned on May 22, 1861 as commander of Company I, 1st Massachusetts Volunteers. He was killed in action on May 2, 1863 at Chancellorsville, Virginia. I don't know about you, podcasters, but these are fascinating. Now, when Lincoln issued a call, this is how it was answered. And they're coming to Washington. Now, in the last podcast, I don't know if I mentioned, yes, I did. So if you listen to that first podcast, I'm going to remind you. If you've not listened to the last lecture, I'm going to tell you several things that I will repeat more than once. Lincoln had virtually no military experience. Now, when I say virtually no military experience, I'm going to give you his history in the military, and you see if the word virtually is the right word. 1832, there was a little war called the Black Hawk War. You can look it up. 
Lincoln was elected captain of a militia company from Illinois. He said as long as he lived, he was more proud of winning that election than even being elected president. Now let's get to virtually no military experience. During that war, he said that he shed a lot of blood every time he slapped a mosquito. And as far as military knowledge, he found himself moving his company across a field and all the way they were coming to a fence. He could not think of what commands to give to get his unit on the other side of that fence. So he simply halted them and said, I will dismiss you and you will reassemble on the other side of that fence. Dismissed. It worked and it continued on. Now let's get back to the word virtually. No military experience. So here we go again. Last podcast, I'm going to remind you. You did not attend that class, I'm going to tell you. President of the Confederacy, Jefferson Finus Davis, Finus, middle name, Latin for finished. He was the ninth child. His father named him Finus because his father was finished with having children. Military experience, graduated from the Military Academy at West Point, hero of the Mexican War, Commandant of the Military Academy and Secretary of War. Let's pretend these are the two starting quarterbacks for the Super Bowl. Which one are you putting your money on? I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. Historians that know about this war know that when a newspaper man wrote the day Jefferson Davis was inaugurated as president of the Confederacy, wrote, The man and the hour have met. Shelby Foote only wrote one history in his writing career. It's a brief 3,000-page history of the Civil War. He's from Mississippi. Wrote about that quote that I just gave you. That newspaper man had the right words, but he had the wrong man. Historians who know about this war will tell you something that may shock you. If Lincoln had been president of the Confederacy, the Confederates would have won. Lincoln will out General Jefferson Davis from day one. He doesn't get credit for that. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what he did. Now, I have read... There are more than 70,000 books on the Civil War. I don't know if the two that I have were written in time to be counted among the 70,000. I don't know who counted them, but I have to take their word for it. Of the 70,000 books written on the Civil War, there's approximately 50,000 on Lincoln. Again, who counted them? Who I'm going to tell you this, of all those thousands of books, there's only one of Lincoln as commander-in-chief. I read that. 
I read it. And that's one of the reasons I want to tell you about this battle. When I was in class, I told my students I was not going to do the Civil War as the Civil War as a subject alone. I did that twice. A night class and an MWF class, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And in 16 weeks, I got through the Battle of Gettysburg, which was halfway through the war. So what I'm going to do, and what I did with them, is I told about the battles that had something important to do with how Lincoln and the North are going to win this war. Now that's what I'm going to do, but because he's a podcast, I may throw in a few other things I don't know yet. We'll just have to see. But this is what I want you to know. Lincoln had no military experience virtually. The important thing is this. He knew he did not know. And if you know you do not know something that you need to know, how do you learn it? Well, Lincoln apparently got in a carriage, or he maybe walked over to the Library of Congress, and he checked out books on military strategy. And he started reading. But I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. That man is the secret. Because I guarantee you Jefferson Davis knew everything that Lincoln is going to read in those books. And who's going to out-general who? But it takes time. Now, there are things that we, meaning we Americans, do not learn. Why don't I include the rest of the world? I don't know about them. And the reason I say we is because we, me, is an American. And I visit with Americans, I talk to Americans, and I listen to Americans. And so I will say again, we Americans do not learn two things. We do not learn history. We do not learn history. And we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over and over. Did I say over? I'll say it again, over and over again. And one of the mistakes that we keep repeating, shall I say over and over, is this. Never underestimate your enemy. Northerners and Southerners both underestimated their enemy. I'm just used Northerners and Southerners, Union and Confederates, because that's what we're talking about. Southerners thought the Yankees were going to be so easy to defeat. Oh, my goodness gracious, as one Confederate said after the war, we thought we could whoop them with cornstalks. We just could not get them to fight us with cornstalks. Both sides. Virtually everyone. There's that word, virtually. There were a few. Short war. How short? 90 days. Lincoln did not need them all 90 days, but that would take care of it. How many battles? One. And what battle should that be? 
where Lincoln's still trying to learn. And so everyone in the North said that one battle should be the taking of the Confederate capital at Richmond. And so the battle cry was, newspaper headlines, on to Richmond. Now who's going to command? Lincoln didn't know who the military people were. And so someone suggested Irvin McDowell. McDowell looked good on paper. He graduated from military academy. Had been in the Mexican War. And I'm going to mention, I've only read three books on the Mexican War. And if you know about the Civil War and you're reading about the Mexican War, all the generals of the Civil War are lieutenants and captains in the Mexican War. In fact, one book I read on the Mexican War is titled The Training Ground. So Irving McDowell is appointed commander of the Union forces to go and win the only battle. 70,000 men, 90,000 men. His army will be 35,000 that he's going to take into Virginia. Now, McDowell knew these men were not trained. I cannot give you an exact date when boot camp started, Army basic training. Paris Island, South Carolina, where Marines are trained, where I was a drill instructor for two years, it was established sometime prior to the First World War. If you're not into dates, 1917, but not Civil War. How do these men get trained? Some of the officers maybe knew something about it. They trained them as best they could. McDowell knew these men were not trained. But Lincoln's looking at the calendar. And he called General McDowell in. He said, get on down there and whip them. My words. And General McDowell said, Sir, our men are not trained. They are green. And Lincoln said, And so is the enemy. You are green alike. Look at the calendar. So, July the 18th, 1861, Irving McDowell's force of 35,000 men starts south. Now, Richmond's about 100 miles away. But between Richmond... And Washington, D.C. is a Confederate army under the hero of Fort Sumter General, can you say it? Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, who has approximately 22,000 men in a defensive position along a creek called Bull Run, about six miles of Confederate soldiers. Now, some miles to the west, is a little town called Harper's Ferry. If you know about John Brown, John Brown's raid, that's the Harper's Ferry. That is General Joseph E. Johnston. Now, near Joseph E. Johnston is a Union force of about 18,000 men under command of a General Patterson. Podcasters, raise one hand, Unless you're driving. If you're driving, both hands on the wheel. If you're not driving, raise one hand. I don't care if it's your right hand or your left hand. When is the last time 
that you walked 25 miles. Raise your hand. Mr. Stroud, you said when, not raise your hand. Raise your hand and tell me when. Now put your hands down. Raise your hand if you walked those 25 miles in July. Raise your hand if you were carrying a pack of about 35 pounds and a musket of 10 pounds. Raise your hand if you were wearing a wool uniform. Raise your hand if you had an overcoat. It took them a while to do this. And raise your hand the last time you saw 35,000 men march past in the Christmas parade. Wars are fought by young people. Some of these kids were boys. And there they were marching south into Virginia. And when they saw blackberry bushes, they attacked them. It took them a while to get down there. General Beauregard realized that the northern forces were coming. So using the telegraph, he telegraphed Joseph E. Johnston to bring his men from Harper's Ferry. There were about 8,000 of them and join him. They do that while McDowell's army is moving south. And so before McDowell get to, gets to Bull Run, Beauregard has an army of about 34,000, 32,000. I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. Write it down and do not forget it. In 1776, I use that for the date of Independence American Revolution. There was a ratio that every officer had better know. If you are going to attack an enemy in a defensive position, you need to have that enemy outnumbered a minimum, minimum of three to one. Why? In the revolution, cannons could start killing you hundreds of yards away. Muskets to start killing you at a hundred yards away. Let's just use a hundred yards. Get out on a football field. Get on one goal line and start walking toward the other. Don't run, walk. Now, every 60 seconds, I want you to imagine that someone on the other goal line shot at you three times, three times a minute. In 1861, that ratio went from 3 to 1 to 5 to 1. 5 to 1. Cannons in the Civil War could start killing you a mile away. Now, get your calculators out. McDowell's got 35,000 men to attack a Confederate force of approximately 32,000. Is 35,000 five times more than 32? Put your calculators up. Now, I taught history for a long time. Calculators, get them back out. 39 years at Kilgore College, four years before that at West Rusk Middle School, Gaston Campus. And this is the first time 
but I'm going to teach you battle. Well, you are not looking at me. I'm not looking at you. And when you look at me, you look over my left shoulder, and you see, starting at West Rusk, a blackboard. Kilgore College, a blackboard, and then we went to one of those new boards, those white boards. And on that board would have been a battle map. And my battle maps were simple because they are the easiest ones to see and know what's going on. In the eighth grade, I would draw the battle lines and I would use the chalk and I would show the eighth graders how the armies moved. And my eighth grade scholars got confused because the chalk was just all over the place. And so one day I came in and I was so proud. I said, eighth graders, my little scholars, I have a surprise for y'all. I got over into the storage cabinet and I found red and blue chalk. And we're doing the American Revolution. So the red would be the Brits and the blue would be the Americans. The eighth graders were thrilled. I was thrilled when the battle was over. I found I could not erase the board. That chalk just would not disappear. So I had to go back to the white. Fast forward. Kilgore College. A few years ago. I got one of these little pen lights that you could shine up on the board. A laser. And I could move that light all over the place. Well, everything I just told you I can't do on a podcast. So I thought about it. I even got out a piece of paper, and I was going to have you get out a piece of paper and draw. Easier said than done. And so I discovered something that I did not know about. What I want you to do when I finish this class, and I know Dale likes it, and I know Donna's going to do it, go to YouTube. Go to the Internet. And you search for Animated Map First battle, bull run. Animated map, first bull run. Now you can also do Manassas, and you're going to get to the same place. It's going to do an excellent job of telling you about the battle of first bull run. You know we cannot have a first until we have a second. So at the day of the battle, 1861, it's only Bull Run. Now, since I keep saying that, I want to go on and tell you now why most of these battles have two different names. This comes from something called Battle Reports. We call now After Action Reports. About 200,000 pages of them. I've read many of them. When I did the Civil War books, you have to go to these battle reports. In the library, they're called the Official Records of the War of the Rebellion. That's what they were published as. They were put out by the United States government starting in the 1880s. Podcasters, I'm going to be, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you things that you're going to have difficulty finding other places and the reason is I continue to read read reading is an ing learning is an ing why did many of these battles have two 
different names. Well, one of the things you hear all the time and is incorrect for this war, well, the victors write the history, not in the Civil War. Confederates started writing the history as the battle smoke was still rising above the field. So why are there two different names? What is his name? You look at the battle reports. For reasons I do not know, the northern forces tended to fix their position in the battle report that they're going to write for someone who does not see them at all during in the battle. And they have to tell the commander where that unit was, how that unit got there, and what that unit did in that battle. And so, I'm going to paraphrase the way they would begin the report. Northerners tended to fix their position by the nearest body of water. So in this battle, a Union officer would put something like, We crossed the stream at Bull Run. Sherman, who was there, said, We crossed Bull Run Creek near the Stone Bridge. So Northern, after action reports, used the word Bull Run, Bull Run, Bull Run. Two words, not one. I'm sorry, my bad. Southerners tended to fix their position near with the nearest town. We moved through the small town of Manassas, Virginia. And so when you're looking at the after action report, Northerners keep using Bull Run, Bull Run, Bull Run. Southerners, Manassas, 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 and that's where the two names come from. There will be some battles where there's only one name, Gettysburg, for example. And so, go to the animated map, First Bull Run. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple of things that they won't tell you on that animated map. The Union forces are going to start the attack about 6 a.m. They're going to attack in a position to try to hold the Confederates in position while a flanking movement moves down Bull Run Creek and comes over and attacks the Confederate left. The fighting is going to be near the Stone Bridge. Union forces are going to start pushing the Confederates back toward Matthews Hill. You're going to see that. It goes back and forth, but slowly the Confederates are being pushed back and pushed back. Meanwhile, the flanking movement comes across Bull Run Creek and dives into the Confederates. At this time, a brigade of Virginians arrive when I use the full name Henry House Hill. You also hear Henry Hill. I go with the full name Henry House Hill. And the commander of that brigade of Virginians is a man named Thomas Jonathan Jackson. While the battle is going on, Jackson formed his brigade on that hill. Confederates are retreating, and a Confederate general by the name of Bernard B. B-E-E, -E, sees Jackson and that brigade up on Henry House Hill, and he goes up there probably on a horse. I'm not sure. Now, why would I say that? See, I say something, I gotta stop. In that war, an officer, lieutenant, and a captain were foot officers. Infantry, they walked. Major and above were staff and field officers. They rode horses. The reason is you had to get up above the fray so you could see what was going on. 
That was the good news. The bad news is you didn't stay up there long because you got killed. So Bernard B. may have been on foot just because of the battle, or he may have been on a horse. But he saw Jackson up there with that brigade, and he rode up or walked up, and he said, General, we're being pushed back. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Can we form with you? And Jackson said yes. So Bernard B. goes back down among the retreating Confederates. He takes his sword and he points it toward Jackson. And he says, There stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginia. That's how Thomas Jonathan Jackson got the nickname Stonewall. Podcasters. If four people saw an accident, how many different stories are you going to have? There will be variations on what I just told you, but the end result is Stonewall Jackson gets his nickname there. No one could ask Bernard B. to repeat it, because within the hour he would be killed. They then start fighting near Henry House Hill, back and forth, back and forth, and finally... No more reinforcements for the Federals, and the Federals start retreating. It was like a four hour, four hours of battle. It's difficult to tell the winners from the losers in a battle. The Federals started retreating. You also may know there were civilians that came to watch the battle. I think sometimes people think it was the only time they did that. No, it wasn't. They'd done it at Fort Sumter. They're going to do it in other battles when it's near a town. But when that retreating took place, there starts to be a panic. The Union forces are retreating back to Washington, D.C. Confederate forces are disorganized. They're exhausted. They could not have followed the Union forces in and won the war. One of the things that they did in that war was any time a Union army left, they better make sure there's enough soldiers to defend Washington that Washington is not going to be taken. At least if they do, it's going to be a bloody battle. And this is the first battle. My eighth graders wanted to know what was the score. What were the casualties? So I'm going to give them to you. Okay. For the Union, 481 killed in action. Now, to be killed in action, you had to be dead right there. I mean, not still dead. 1,011 wounded in action, WIA. Killed in action, KIA. Wounded in action, WIA. But the wounded in action, they do not have another one. They do not have a DOW. Data wounds. Approximately 80% of those wounded would die. And something else, podcasters. In that war, if you were shot in the chest or the stomach, they left you there to die. They did not have a clue about how to treat you. They did not know about germs. Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes suggested in a medical journal that surgeons start washing their blades between surgeries 
because of germs. He was guessing germs. He was laughed at. We're a gentleman, the doctor said. When you got wounded, and I, there's so many things. Someone who does not know anything about doctoring has to decide that you have a chance of surviving or they're not even take you to the doctor. And when they toted you to the doctor, there's about 600 people ahead of you. And all they could do was cut off arms and legs. Oh, there was a little bit in the north where they, they could put you to sleep. They ran out of that. So they give you a swig of whiskey and put a bullet in your mouth and you bite down. That's where we got the term bite the bullet. And then they put you over in a barn or in the field. That's where the diseases would come. About 80% of those WIAs are going to become DOWs, died of wounds. With the North, 1,216 missing in action, MIA. Now, how do they get these numbers? If you were like Rand and you had a company of 80 men and you went into battle with 80 and you came out with 60, you have to account for those 20. So you simply would ask, what happened to Jim? He's dead. I saw him. Okay. Bill? He's wounded. Leroy? Nobody knows where he is, but he's probably dead. And so, the grand total of Union carriages that one day in about four hours, 2,708. Confederate casualties, 387 killed in action, 1,582 wounded in action, 13 missing in action for a total of 1,982. For Union and Confederates combined, 4,690. Podcasters, if you know about this war, 700,000 approximately are going to die. If you know about this war on one day in 1862, September the 17th, there would be nearly 30,000 casualties. In three days in 1863 at Gettysburg, there are going to be more than 50,000 casualties. So when you look at the number of 4,000 here, those are light casualties, aren't they? Really? Podcasters, I don't care if the light casualties are one. If you're that one, that's as heavy as it gets. This nation had never seen a day or an afternoon as bloody as that Sunday in its entire history. Most of the people that were in that battle would write Ever and a day about bloody Manassas, bloody Bull Run. There's so much to learn about these people. Lincoln married Mary Todd of Kentucky, who came from a slaveholding family. Her brothers were all Confederate soldiers, officers. Lincoln's favorite brother-in-law was a Confederate general. One of his brother-in-laws was a captain at Bull Run. He said he'd never seen anything as horrible as Bull Run. And they hadn't. And they hadn't. 
it had a different effect upon the North and the South. The Confederates who were not in that battle were convinced that they were going to win the war easily. And Lincoln could not believe how horrible it was. Lincoln knew now it was not going to be a short war. So he issued another call. 300,000 volunteers for three years. Now, what I've not told you is this. What did Lincoln really learn from this battle? This is what he learned. When you look at that animated map, when you listen to what I just said, when Joseph E. Johnston withdrew from Harper's Ferry, took train, and came over near Manassas to join Johnston, why was he able to do that? Why was he able to reinforce the Confederate Army that was going to be attacked by McDowell before McDowell got there? Because the Union Army facing Johnston at Harper's Ferry offered no threat. It just sat there. Podcast is about six things I need to say from what I just told you. Number one. To find a Union general that wants to destroy the Confederate Army, it would be easier to find teeth in a rooster. They did not want to do it. The commander of the Army at that time, Winfield Scott, hero of two wars, 1812. Gosh, I even hate saying that. Did they really call the War of 1812 the War of 1812 when the War of 1812 was going on? Or was that just because historians couldn't come up with a name? It was also known as the Second War of Independence. He was also a hero in the Mexican War where he got the nickname Old Fuss and Feathers. Loved those dress uniforms. Had one of the rooms in his home with mirrors everywhere so he could strut back and forth and admire himself. But now the old soldier is an old soldier. And he's put on weight like many old soldiers do. And he wanted a strategy that is now known as the Anaconda Strategy. Divide the Confederacy by controlling the Mississippi, blockade the East Coast with about 80 ships, 3,500s of coast, ships that had sail, and then just wait. No, sir. Lincoln's not going to wait. What did Lincoln learn from the first battle of Bull Run that is in only one book that I read on Lincoln as commander-in-chief? This is his lesson. Not just one offensive. You have to attack the Confederate armies from every different position so they cannot continually reinforce themselves. Now I'm going to say it again and again and again. Easier said than done to find a general that would do that. It was a defeat. Now, At that time, there were no medals. We believed at that time that medals were too European. 
There was no metal, no good conduct. But there will be. And in the next podcast, I may very well then tell you about it, or it may be the one after that. Tell you about what? The Medal of Honor. It will be created in the North during the Civil War. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to tell you one of the reasons for the creation of the Medal of Honor. It's because in these after-action reports, there were men in the North that were brave. One of them was a young lieutenant by the name of Adelbert Ames, who remained upon the field of battle after being severely wounded until too weak from loss of blood to sit up on the caisson of his cannon where his men had placed him. The caisson is the part that pulled the cannon into battle. The other one, First Lieutenant Charles Murphy, 38th New York Volunteers, took a rifle and voluntarily fought with his regiment in the ranks when the regiment was forced back, voluntarily remaining upon the field, caring for the wounded, and was there taken prisoner. They were not received the Medals of Honor for about 30 years. And I will t- discuss that reason when I get to the Medal of Honor. Homework, animated map, first Manassas, or first Bull Run. And then I want you to type in Stonewall Jackson nickname. Stonewall Jackson Manassas. And what you're going to do is go on a battlefield tour with a park ranger. He's going to take you to Henry House Hill. He's going to tell you about Jackson there and what Jackson's part of the battle was. He's also going to tell you, and here is a little teaser, if that's the right word. Here you will learn about who and what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were. You're going to learn about Stonewall Jackson getting the nickname and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, podcasters, I hope you enjoyed it and hope you come back for another class, which will be very soon. Dismissed.